If you turn tonight to Acts chapter 17, as we continue again this incredible journey with the Apostle Paul as he makes a circuit, he's on his third missionary journey. He's heading again along the coast of the northern Aegean Sea. He's making a trip through very specific towns. He almost always, as we are reminded uh, here in Acts chapter 17, making stops along the way in places that we would normally expect to find someone who is uh, masterfully going to use what we would call the Old Testament, what would have been known then as the, the Pentateuch or the first five books of Moses, likely along with the Psalms. But the Apostle Paul is going to reason from the Scriptures. And you're going to see that a couple of times here in chapter 17. Important for you to remember what those Scriptures would have been at that time. You see, in our day and time, when we think of reasoning from the Scriptures, we would probably include both the Old Testament and the New Testament. However, this period of time is only about 21 years or so after the death the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so no one had the completed works that we would call the New Testament. So the scriptures they're going to reason from are in fact the Old Testament. And the beauty of that is what happens is Paul reasons from the scriptures. Because he's going to reason the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ from the Old Testament. He's going to remind first Jewish people that God himself, before the foundation of the world, laid out the plan of salvation. It was not a New Testament period of time in which that idea became something that God suddenly thought up. It was the plan all along. And in order to make that plan real to Jewish believers, in order for us to have that validated to us, he uses, in fact, the Old Testament to make that argument. And so would you join me now as we begin in verse 1 here in Acts chapter 17. And now when they had passed through Amphilus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Again, the book that we're studying normally on Sunday mornings, this church at Thessalonica, the very same church, this is the place where the Apostle Paul uh, begins that work. He's going to be used there with Timothy, uh, and, and they begin this amazing ministry there in this very prominent port city, this city which had a great view of Mount Olympus. They could have simply looked towards the west, and there it would be the home of the Greek pantheon, uh, the, the, the number of gods almost innumerable, but there certainly they would have had a great picture. Uh, of, of that which the, the Jewish people would call everything they knew about God was contained there on Mount Olympus. And there was there a synagogue of the Jews. And so again, that same picture. And then Paul, as was his custom, went into them. And for three Sabbaths, and again, notice he gives a Hebrew point of view here, for three Sabbaths, the Sabbath would have been from Friday night to sundown on Saturday. So for three of them, could have been two weeks, could have been three weeks. We don't know uh, when he was talking about starting, but containing a period of time with three Sabbaths in it, uh, for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them, and here it is, from the Scriptures. So the only written Scriptures that would have been floating around would have been the first five books, likely the books of Moses. More than likely, uh, they would have had the book of Isaiah. Entirely likely, they would have had the prophets, the Old Testament prophets. And so what we would call the Old Testament, but certainly uh, those works that we would consider to be the Old Testament is what's in view here. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ. Now, interestingly enough, notice the preposition, the Christ. He's talking about the promised Christ. He's talking about the Christ of the Old Testament, the Christ, the anointed one, Mashiach. He's saying the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. That is not a New Testament concept. 
That is an Old Testament concept. That is something they would have been looking for. As a Hebrew person in a synagogue, they certainly would have recalled and brought to memory the writings of the prophet Isaiah. For the chastisement of our peace was upon him. That he would be counted as a sheep to the slaughter. He would be silent before the shearers. And so they were looking for the Christ. And here's the picture for us. God always has a way to open a door to a person's heart. In this case, in the Jewish context, the open door was the Old Testament. Something that they would have understood very clearly. Specifically, I'm sure, the writings of the prophet Isaiah. And no doubt, those words of Moses. And who will make like unto himself a prophet like Moses, but greater than he. And so he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The psalmist David reminded us in the 16th Psalm that Sheol, the grave, could not hold him. So that was a thousand years previous that David had spoken those words. And saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you, notice again how he frames it, is the Christ. The Messiah you've been looking for, the Christ that you have been looking for. Jesus is him. He is the Christ. Jesus of Nazareth, you remember Peter's sermon? Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified. He's the Christ. He's the one you've been looking for. So this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of devout Greeks. And not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Now it's interesting. And it's also very unusual that there are women joining anything having to do with men. And so here we see the beginning uh, of the Lord using very prominent women in the spreading of the gospel. And I want you to hang on to that thought because it's going to carry over into next week's message. Women in in the New Testament period were used mightily to spread the word of the Lord. And they did so to men at times. It is a falsehood. It is not true that the Bible teaches egalitarianism, that there is a ruling class and that class is men. The Bible clearly teaches complementarianism, which means that men and women, though different in the way that God has constructed us, and even different in basic temperament and giftings at times, Women are equally gifted at sharing the truth of God's word and do so frequently and often. And so hang on to that thought. A few of the leading women. But the Jews who were not persuaded, and notice how religion now comes into view. When you are set in your ways, when you have spent a lot of time in a religious point of view, it is very difficult to break up that ground because you're extremely invested in your position. And so it says here that the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. So they go to the Gora, the place that people would normally uh, speak to one another and carry on conversation, uh, very much like we might do in the, in the line at Target, they did there in the marketplace. So in the marketplace, they gathered a mob and set the whole city in an uproar and, and attacked the house of Jason. And sought to bring them out to the people, but when they did not find them, they dragged Jason out and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the whole world upside down. Are you turning the world upside down for Jesus? I ask you a question. Are you turning the world upside down for Jesus? You see, that's what Paul, that's what these men, that's what these women did. They turned the world upside down for Jesus. You you see, the world is wrong side up right now. So turning it 
upside down means it's now right side up. Amen? If the world is starting out upside down, which it is, and you turn it upside down, that means it's now right side up. Amen? We need to see this for the way it's written. Yes, they were turning the world upside down, but that meant they were turning it finally the right way around. And that's the message that you have tonight. That's the message that you have to the people that you work with. That is the message that you have in the marketplace today. You have the message that turns the world upside down from where it currently is, and because it's already upside down, you have the message that turns the world right side up. And you need to preach it the way Paul's preaching it. We need to preach it. We need to live it the way the Apostle Paul lives it here. These who have turned the world upside down. And what world were they talking about? Their world. The world as they saw it. The world as they believed it. Their wrong perceptions of the world. The world as they believed it did not include the one true God. It included the Greek pantheon. For some of them, it actually was atheism. And we'll get to that in in a little bit. Because in this passage, you have the Epicureans and the Stoics, two radically different viewpoints coming out of the same culture, much as we have today. Isn't it weird how people raised in the same place can be completely diametrically opposed in their worldview? The same was true for the Greeks. Well, they have come here too. In other words, these, these people who were turning the world on its head, flipping it around, and Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Now, do you think for a moment that these Greeks were actually concerned about Caesar? And the answer is no. They were not concerned at all about Caesar. Caesar was a convenient buzzword, much like we have people using convenient buzzwords today. Well, you know, it's partisan. Well, well, you know, I, I, just, don't, I just don't believe that that's, that's true. So whatever I think is the way it actually is. The people then were politically correct. Much as people are, well, I, you know, I don't know if I can believe in this Jesus thing. I mean, after all, he's kind of exclusive. Brothers and sisters, the message of the cross is extremely exclusive on one side and absolutely 100% inclusive on the other. To as many as will, to all who will believe, to as many as receive him. And there's no exclusion on that side. But he also, on the other side, is the only way, the only truth, the only life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. So these guys are saying, look, they're messing with Caesar. And we worship Caesar. They didn't worship Caesar. They had to profess that they worshiped Caesar. They had to pay taxes to Caesar. They hated Caesar's guts. And it's amazing how many times people will take a specific religious view because it is in their best interest politically. And we have those people with us today. They will align themselves with a specific political view and then shape their view of Christianity around their political view. Christ alone is how we get our view of God through the Word of God. Not because of specific party, either one, do we adhere to. We are Christians first. Everything else is second. Jason has harbored them And these are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Well, you see, Jesus wasn't trying to be the king of the earth. He wanted to be the king of men's hearts. He wanted his kingdom to come, which was not of this world. He said that. Do you remember what he said? My kingdom is not of this world. Those are the words of Jesus. So Jesus wasn't trying to overthrow Caesar. Jesus was trying to take control of men's hearts, which were always supposed to be inclined to God, but had gotten far from God. Saying there is another king. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city, and they heard these things. Now, this whole thing is puffed up. 
Not a bit of it is actually factual the way it's being presented. This is not what was going on. All Paul was doing was meeting in a synagogue, talking to people and reasoning from the scriptures. That's what we know about what he was doing. The problem was the people were hearing the truth, believing the truth, and the world was getting altered because of the truth. You see, when we begin to speak the truth, the world listens. So speak the truth. And so when they had taken security from Jason, I think this is very interesting to me. It's kind of an interesting way to say it. But basically what they're saying here, it's very much like if you went and say one of your relatives uh, gets arrested for some infraction and they've been, been in jail and they were released on bond, that is what's in view here. There was money posted saying that here's what's going to happen. We know there's been a crime. And that crime is serious, but we're going to let them go. But you need to give us money to secure the fact that they're going to come back and face the charges. And so the Apostle Paul, Silas, basically now have a bond placed against them. So they'll come back and then they just let these guys go. We'll deal with you later is kind of the way that they're looking at it. And when you think about this place, Paul and Silas have now traveled from Philippi to Thessalonica. It's about 100 miles. Uh, They've gone through these two uh, cities, Amphilus and Apollonia. We don't know anything about them. We don't know if they stopped there. Perhaps they were so Greek that there was no uh, synagogue there, and maybe they just kind of passed them by. But they go to Thessalonica, and that's, again, the basis of the the letters that we're studying now on Sunday morning. But this is, is in essence, the strategic city in that region. It was the capital of Macedonia, uh, northern Greece. It was the center of business. It was rivaled only by Corinth in the south as far as a place of business. It was located on four different trade routes. It was located on the Via Maris, the Ignatian Way, the Via Roma. Uh, and, and so this was, a, this was a very well-traveled place. So it, it makes sense that if God wanted to get the message of the gospel out, the way you do that is, is take it to some place where there's a lot of coming and going, much like Los Angeles. People come and go from here all the time. We sometimes forget that LAX is the fifth largest airport in the entire world uh, as far as volume of traffic, and people come and go. And with the movie industry and all the things that happen here, there's people constantly transiting through this region. Thessalonica would have been like that in, in, the, in that world at that time. It was a place that people came to, they did business there, and then they traveled on. And so God, being all-wise and all-knowing, does exactly what you would think he would do. He would take the gospel first to strategic areas where it would then be spread uh, to the rest of the known world. And the message that they're bringing is, was not a, of a political nature. And for a moment, I want to speak to that. You know, sometimes we get hung up in political causes. And by the way, your faith should affect your political understanding. But you notice the Apostle Paul here stayed out of politics for the most part. He was not politically motivated. He believed that if the heart of men, God sent the message to people so that it would change the heart of man, and then the heart of man being changed would shape the political world. It never works the other way around. You cannot change the culture by simply changing the culture without changing the heart. You must change the heart for that cultural change to happen. And God knew that. And so the Apostle Paul, while eventually politics would get changed because of the way they believed, he he didn't immediately try and overthrow the Roman government. He didn't try and tear down the Greek pantheon. And we're going to see that in the remainder of this chapter He preached a Christ that died even for his enemies. They move on now to Berea, the home of the Bereans, verse 10. And then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they travel a short distance, only about 30 miles, uh, maybe 40, depending on which way you travel. And when they arrive, again, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. So you can see the, the plan here. Here's how God worked in that day and time. And these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. 
In other words, they were more reasonable. It, it actually, that, that, that word that we're going to see in a moment, it, it says, in that they received the word with all readiness. That's a farming term. The term readiness means to prepare a field. And so the readiness that they had was the field had been plowed. Their hearts were ready to receive the seed. The ground had been turned up, in other words. If you know anything about farming, there's time, for, there's time for planting, there's time for watering, there's time for fertilizing, there's time for harvesting. There's a lot that goes on when you're a farmer. It's a year-round process. And in fact, even some of the laying fallow, in other words, you turn the soil over and, and you let it sit there. You, you let some of that organic material break down by sunlight. There, there's even some time for the dirt to do nothing if you want to really have good crops. And so that's in picture here now. They received the word with all readiness because their hearts had been turned over, their hearts had been stirred up, their hearts had been fertilized, and now they're ready to to receive uh, the scriptures themselves. And they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And so these are those whom we call the Bereans. They, They looked at the scriptures and they said, you know what? Great argument. That's a wonderful way to put it, but we're going to look and see ourselves. I want to encourage you, be Bereans. Search the scriptures daily for yourself to see if these things are so. One of the things we try and do very carefully and accurately here in Calvary Chapel is to simply teach the word simply. That's one of the phrases that Pastor Chuck used to use all the time. Simply teach the word simply. Let the word do its own work. And so the Bereans were checking out their Bibles. They pulled out their smartphones at the time, which would have been a scroll, and said, where is that? As Paul's teaching, probably got some guy over there jotting down notes on a tablet, a piece of parchment. Okay, he said that. Write it down. And then they would go, and they would see if it was so. So when he would give testimony to the prophet David, they would check and see if it said that in the Psalms. If Daniel was attributed to something, they would check the writings of the prophet Daniel. If Isaiah was given credit for having said those, they would check the scroll of Isaiah. They searched the scriptures. In Jesus' name, search the scriptures daily for yourself. See if these things are so. Read it for yourself. We are blessed in our modern day and time. Victor and I were talking about this after service this afternoon. Man, everybody can pull out their smartphone, click blue letter Bible. It's like, that isn't what that says. It says this. Search the scriptures daily. I think a, not, a Bible that's not marked up is kind of a sad thing. Now, I'm not saying you have to mark up your Bible, but my Bibles eventually, I, have to, I don't throw them away, by the way. I retire them. Because they get so marked up, I can't read them after a while. So I got, now I have to kind of look around my notes because it's like I'm searching the scriptures. And I write little funny things in there and asterisks and I underline and I highlight. And sometimes I write in red and sometimes I write in black and sometimes I write in blue. And then I get other colors of highlighters. I'm searching the scriptures. Please search the scriptures for yourselves to see if these things are so. It's so important for us. You see, if you'll search the scriptures, the Holy Spirit will enlighten your searching and you will know that these things are true. The Spirit itself bears witness of the truth of of the scriptures. And you won't have any problems. You go, yep, search the scriptures. I know that's true. And again, therefore, many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks and prominent women as well as men. So again, there's an effort to put forth a very specific narrative about the role of women in the early church. And we need to hear this message because I think it's something that we've overlooked. And it has created a problem, I believe, in our our world today. And I think that Scripture itself helps us overcome that problem. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Now, this is the way the enemy works. The enemy doesn't retire, doesn't just, well, you know, they they left, so we're just going to give up. The enemy's still stalking. 
And they do so very often through other religious points of view. In this case, it was the Jews themselves who actually knew the Old Testament as well. But they're saying, ah, that's not what it means. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go out onto the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. And so those who were conducted with Paul also brought him to Athens, receiving command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed. And so they split up for a period of time. Paul and Silas stay more than likely in Philippi, uh, just a little ways away, uh, because we know that that's where Timothy spent a great deal of his time. And Paul uh, makes his way down to Athens. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in just a moment. Uh, Paul had been overjoyed at the way the, the word had been planted in Thessalonica. And there's, and there's all kinds of things going on. And then these noble Bereans are, are encouraging his heart because the truth has set them free. But the enemy is trying to plow up the field again. The enemy tries to snatch away the seed of the word of God. When Jesus gave us the parable of the sower, that was the picture. It's the same picture that we have here. Hearts are being prepared. The seed is being scattered. It's beginning to sprout. And here comes the enemy. Well, I'll just snatch that away. I'll just pull out that which has been planted And I believe more than likely it was the growing witness of the Bereans. As they're searching the scriptures, guess what they're going to do? They're going to testify to the truth of the scriptures. They're going to go, Paul was right. Pastor Jeff was right. No, that's the truth. That's what the Bible says. And family, it's kind of a, I'll just be honest with you. It is a fun thing for me as a pastor to listen to some of your discussions. I'm kind of standing over there in the corner going, yeah, they get it. They've been reading their Bibles. I'm listening to you defend the Scriptures. It's an encouragement to me. And I'm sure it was an encouragement to Paul. Because I'll tell you what, Satan has his missionaries as well. We we send out missionaries with the truth. We send them out with the Word. We send them out to go carry out the Great Commission. But the enemy hates that. And so he sends his people too. As Victor reminded us today, the glorious thing is, greater is he who's in us. Amen? So no matter what those other guys are doing, we know that we have the the winning team. So Silas, Timothy will join Paul later in Athens. But but there's there's this growing work. So all around the Aegean Sea, and it's important to see this. So as you think of that area of the world... You have the Roman culture, which is obviously centered in Rome and in modern-day Italy. And then the very next peninsula that you have uh, is the Greek peninsula. And then next to that, we would call then at that time Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey and Syria, and then flowing down to the Middle East. This is the cradle, in essence, of, of faith. And so as Victor was talking today, and you're talking about, you know, Jesus was born in the Middle East, Amen. Oh, this is the Middle East. This, this is the seat of the only three. There's only three monotheistic religions in the entire world still to this day. That is Islam, Judaism, and biblical Christianity. There's only three. Every other religion is, in a general sense, pantheistic. Either multiple gods or true pantheism, which is everything's God. And we're going to see some of these guys. Verse 16, we find now he's in Athens. Now, Athens was the seat of Grecian thought. Athens was the place where if you wanted to be educated in all things Greek, you went to Athens. If you wanted to be really deeply rooted in Greek religion, which was a pantheon, numerous gods... Zeus at the top, Aphrodite, Hermes, all, this, all these Greek gods. If you wanted to combine those two things, education and religion, you went to Athens. And so now Paul is waiting for them in Athens, verse 16. And now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And he saw that the city was given over to idols. And therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews 
with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. So he is taking every advantage and opportunity he can to share the gospel. And he's doing it in a, in a myriad of ways. The apostle always would remind people, look, to the Greeks I'm a Greek, to the Romans I'm a Roman, but I become all things to all men that in the end I might win some. And so he's ministering in these different environments. And it says there in verse 18, and then certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Neat word there, translated babbler into English. In the original language, it meant one who plucks up seed. In other words, it was as if there was a bird there kind of picking up some seeds, and the intent was to say that this person's just grabbing a little bit from here and a little bit from there and assembling it and just kind of making it into something. In other words, he was making up a story by collecting thoughts from other people. What does this babbler want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. You see, they had a problem. They believed in immortality, hence their gods, but they did not believe in the resurrection. So they had a serious problem with man being God and that man who was God being killed and then put in a grave and raised three days later. If it had just been a God, just add him to the rest. If it had just been that Jesus had died, but he was still immortal, no problem. But that he was dead and then raised to life again, huge issue with the Greeks. So that's also the problem that the rest of the world still has to this day. Amen? People really have no problem with Jesus, the historical figure. They have no problem with God being in some kind of form. That would be Jesus. But they have a huge problem with God and man at the same time dying and being raised from the dead. That's, uh uh-uh. Can't go that far. Same as it was then. And then he took them, or they took them, and brought them to the Areopagus. Now, Areopagus, for those of you that think of that, it's the hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. Mars is the same thing in the Roman pantheon. So this is the god of war. This is the place that they would go, in essence, to argue philosophically about all things. It was the seat of intelligence. It's like they went into the debate hall at Harvard. And now they're going to hash things out and get the brightest and the best minds together, put them all in one place, and let's just have a good old-fashioned debate about what's going on. So they're at the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? Inquiring minds want to know. What is it that you're trying to say? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. When you tell people that don't know the Lord Jesus about Jesus, you're bringing some strange things to their ears. Amen? When you say that you believe literally that God's own Son, who existed before time, came to this earth and was born of a virgin, and that that same man lived out a life of 32 years, and then he was put to death on Calvary's cross, but when he died, he was both a perfect man and also God at the same time. He was buried in the grave, he was risen three days later, and he lives forevermore. When you say that, that's strange to people's ears. They're like, what? God, man? Well, if he was God, how could you kill him? If he was man, how could he be perfect? Still strange things. It's always been strange. That's why Paul would say the gospel is an offense. A stumbling stone to unbelievers. But to us who are being saved, it is the gospel of God unto repentance. Amen? That's strange. And they're like, what are you guys saying? You can't say this stuff here in Athens. I mean, we're the, we're the bright guys. And therefore, we want to know what these things mean. And for all Athenians and foreigners who were there spent, and they spent their time with nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. You see, if you were an Athenian, 
the way you spent your time wasn't going to the movie theater. They didn't go to the AMC 20. They went to the Oropagus and they listened to people debate strange things. They were into philosophy. And so when someone new would come into town, well, let's go hear what this dude has to say. Let's hear what this woman's got. Let's go listen to the arguments and let's hear out what they have said. They spent their time doing basically nothing else. And then Paul stood in the midst of the Oropagus. And he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Notice he doesn't say, you guys are a bunch of idiots. You know, I've never been around a larger group of morons than you. If you were any dumber, you'd have to have rocks for brains. Notice how he starts with a compliment. He's trying to win their favor. He's not trying to insult them. He's trying to open the door so the gospel has a place to go. And so he says, look, you guys sound like some smart guys to me. In all things, I believe you're very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, the Apostle Paul is actually saying, look, I was checking out what you believe. I was hearing what it is that you have to say. And while I was doing that, I even found an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God. And therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, I proclaim him to you. You you see what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he says, you know that opening that God has left in every human heart? You see the Greeks, the Romans did the same thing, didn't want to inadvertently leave anybody out, so they left a place of worship in their lives to, in case they missed anybody. I'm not sure I quite am convinced that we have it all together. So here is this shrine to the God that we don't know. The one that we're not certain of, but he might exist, so here's his shrine. And Paul arrives in this city. Uh, It's exactly as Noel Lyons said. Uh, He was the director of the Greater European Mission. He says, Europe is overlooked Uh, excuse me, Europe is looked over by millions of visitors and yet it is overlooked by millions of Christians. You know, you can see something, you can visit something, but you cannot understand it. Paul had to have open eyes. He had to see with spiritual eyes. He needed to see those people as needing Jesus. He didn't just need to see that they were messed up and worshiping uh, Pantheon. The glory of Athens' politics and its commerce at this time has really kind of faded. And so the city is, is, one might say, is kind of on its last legs. Athens is in great decline by this time. Uh, It's so much so that uh, there's a book out called The Life and the Epistles of St. Paul. And it it says there about, I think it's in somewhere in like 280, 260 in those pages. There's There's a couple of passages there. That the Greek religion was a, a mere deification of human attributes and the powers of nature. You see, at that day, it kind of been dumbed down. And so what happened was, when you saw the Greek gods, when you heard people talk about them, what you heard was really just glorified people. And for most of you, if you've seen any of the movies that have been out about Greek gods, they're fairly accurate. You know, they're just sitting up there on Mount Olympus just kind of messing with people. But by and large, they're just kind of people with bad attitudes and a lot of power. That was the Greek gods. Zeus was always looking for ways to kind of twist the ear of humankind. Freak people out a little bit. And ultimately, their religion became almost amusement more than anything else. And in fact, many of the gods, the goddesses, were nothing more than the human attributes that we already have played out to a very extreme degree. Dionysus, also known as Bacchus, was nothing more than the god of partying. God of partying and orgies, basically. Pretty popular dude in our time. He's got a lot of folks helping him out today. But it's just humankind 
to its extreme, placed into, a, a, in essence, something that you could worship. I would say he still exists today. We don't call him a god. We call him Larry Flint. Right? You understand what I'm saying? We, we call that lifestyle the party lifestyle. Also known as the god Bacchanal. You see, the Greeks admired that. It's like, well, you know, if I was a god, I'd be like this. It's a god of wisdom, god of knowledge, god of war. And so all of their leisure time in Athens was spent debating these things. Well, if I was a god, I'd be like this. And so the city developed a, a very large following of people who just came and debated. Franklin Adams said uh, their philosophy at that time was unintelligible answers to insolvable problems. You know, they just sit around and talk about stuff endlessly. And so here Paul comes into this. There were two groups of people. They had opposing philosophies. They're mentioned here, the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicurean philosophy was pretty much existentialist. In other words, it was gained by experience. Everything was related to personal experience. And if you can't experience it, it's not real. And if you do experience it, it must be real. And whatever your existence is, that's the real thing. So they were the Epicureans. And so consequently, they thought to please themselves was the best way to do anything. Look, I can experience that. I, I, you know, while I'm sitting here drunk having this party, I'm experiencing that, so I'm good. Now, we get the same, when we use the word today in our modern vernacular, when you call someone Epicurean, we normally associate it with food and wine, right? Someone who sits around in their, you know, their goose liver pate, and over here they have their caviar, and, you know, they've got their bottle of wine that was $1,200, and they're sitting around, oh, I'm an Epicurean, well, during that day and time, it was just simply pleasure in all of its facets. The Stoics were the opposites. Uh, they basically rejected uh, the idolatrous pagan worship, and they basically taught uh, this, uh, a true pantheism that God was in everything, and everything was God. And so because that was true, you kind of needed to just endure life. Because we're all kind of part of the same mess. There was no good, there was no evil, but there was definitely pain. And so the Epicureans are saying, enjoy life, and the Stoics are saying, endure life. So these are the people who are standing around talking about these things that Paul are saying. So Paul has a witness in this, in this community. And what he, what he has is this response. He says, one group basically calls him a babbler. He says, look, you're nuts. The other group is kind of confused but interested. Those same people exist today. That's the audience that you're teaching the word to. That's the audience that you're sharing Christ with. Basically, some of them are going to think you're nuts, and other people are curious, they're interested. You just keep preaching the word. Keep telling them the truth. That's what the Apostle Paul does. And so he mounts a defense, if you will. And as he does that, he, he's, he's kind of we see some things about him. First, we see that the word is, is being uh, ridiculed. And as the word is ridiculed, uh, Paul basically says, look, this, this is not a new thing I'm doing. This is the thing that I'm doing. And so they begin to listen to him. And, and as he begins to uh, mount this defense of the argument that he's made, he's going to do so in four parts, and we'll wrap them up fairly quickly here. And he does it in four very specific ways as he shares these things uh, with them. First thing he says to them, notice verse 24. He, he uses the greatness of God, that this God, this unknown God, total masterpiece here, this unknown God that you have, it's right there. He's probably standing next to it going, that shrine right there to the unknown God, let me tell you about him. He's the creator. Everything that you see, everything that is, the questions that mankind still asks today, Mankind still asks, where did I come from, right? Why am I here? Where am I going? Those are the questions that people still ask today. How did I get here? People debate whether we were created or we simply evolved all day, every day. I'm here to tell you, 
Paul said the same thing. There is a creator God. God who made the world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not dwell in temples made with hands, verse 24 says. He says there's a creator God. Science attempts to answer that question. You know, where did I come from? Philosophy wrestles with the second. Why am I here? And only the Christian faith actually answers the third one. Where am I going? So they're sitting there debating all this stuff. There's a total open door. And he basically says to him, he says, look, he's too great to be housed in this silly shrine you have here. He didn't call it that. He says, look, he can't be contained in that thing. He created everything. The second thing, the goodness of God. He's a provider. Notice verse 25. Nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Since he gives all life and breath and all things. He says, there is nothing that he has. He doesn't need your shrine. The shrine that you built not only can't hold him. He doesn't need it. All the stuff that you do, your religious works, doesn't gain you any more favor. Men may pride themselves in, in, in essence, servicing God, but God doesn't need our service. He's self-sufficient. He provides everything that we have. We provide him nothing. We worship him because he's worthy. We serve him because he's God. But he doesn't need it. He's the one that gives to us. And that goodness, Romans 2, 4 says, should lead us to repentance. God providing for us. The third thing. Notice the government of God. You see, they're sitting there debating. You know, well, we think Zeus told Aphrodite to tell Dionysus to tell Mercury to do this. Notice Paul's defense. That there's a government. Actually, God's the ruler. Verse 26, and he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all of the face of the earth. He says, you know what? We're all related. We're actually of the same human family. And has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of their dwellings. He says, you know this uh, building that's right behind us here? This wonderful temple? That's not the seat of government. So that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him. Though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And also some of your own poets have said. It's going to quote from Epimedes. For we also his offspring, and therefore, since we are the offspring of God, ought we not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or something shaped by the art of man's devising? He he says, look, your own poets have said, look, we, we move, we live, we have our being in him. He says, look, here's the deal. God's actually in control. You're sitting here talking about your poets. You're sitting here talking about your gods. There's only one God. And he's actually the ruler of heaven and earth. And then finally he reveals to them the grace of God as we wrap this up tonight. Truly these times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. He says in in all of your fumbling around. In all of your making gods of your own liking, in all of your worship of a god like Dionysus, who is the god of parties, in your worshiping of Zeus, who's basically the king of the gods, he says, you've missed it. He says, now the god that is that unknown god that you built a shrine to, that god is the god of grace. He's not like Zeus. You see, Zeus might just kill you if you had a bad day. He's not like Dionysus. He's just going to invite you to a party. He's not Hermes. He's not just going to bring you a message and then see what happens to you. He's the Savior. 
And now commands everyone to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained and has given assurance of all this by raising him from the dead. Who do you think he's talking about? It's Jesus. He says, you're all one day going to be judged by the man Jesus who was raised from now he's really attacking their religion. He said, look, you guys don't believe in the resurrection. Well, let me tell you this. The God who created the heavens and the earth, the one who provides for you, the one who is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, he's the God of grace and he's asking you to repent. And one day he's going to come and judge this earth. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Brothers and sisters, when you tell people about a risen Christ, some are going to mock you. And others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So they're still listening. They're going, wow, that's different. You ever notice how you have to share the gospel with some people a whole bunch of times? And they hear the word and they understand what you've said and they're listening. But they're not quite there yet. Don't give up on those people. Keep telling them the truth. And so Paul departed from among them. However, when some men joined him and believed, among them, notice this. Now, how'd you like to have a name like Dionysus? He was actually named after the god of partying, the Oropagite. In other words, he was there every single day to be known as an Oropagite. That's somebody who's there on the Oropagus debating philosophical viewpoints all day, every day. He's one of those guys, look, he believes. And a woman named Damaris and others with them. Three different responses to the exact same message. Some laughed, some mocked, some were interested, and some accepted. Those are the answers you're still going to get. Preach the same message. Preach the greatness of God. He's the creator. Preach the goodness of God. He's the provider. Preach the government of God. He's the ruler. And then preach the grace of God. He's the savior. Amen? Would you stand? Let's close in prayer. Worship team's going to come back out. Pastors are going to come forward as we do here on Sunday night. We're running a little long. It's kind of been one of those days. We've been long all day long, so we're still long. Matter of fact, I never actually left the church this afternoon. But I know this. The God that we serve, the God that we love, the God that we worship is worthy of all that we have. And I want to encourage you, if you don't know the greatness of our God, you can have some pastors up front, they'd love to tell you about the greatness of God. If you don't know the goodness of God, we've got some pastors up front, they'd love to tell you about the goodness of God. If you don't know God's plan, he has a plan for this world, and it has nothing to do with our new president. Did you know that? Uh, there's a government of God. Amen? And I'm really thankful for that, because the one we got right now, Nuts. But most importantly, the grace of God. That the same God who created the heavens and the earth came to this earth and died in your place and mine so that we might have eternal life and live forever with God. If you don't know him, there's going to be some guys up front that love you to introduce you to that graceful God. Amen? Father, thank you for tonight. We, we bless your name. And as we close in worship, you are worthy of our worship. You are wonderful. You are good. You are great. Your government, the government of your peace will never end. Lord, one day, you're going to come back as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the deed holder of this earth. And we can't wait. And in the meantime, thank you for your grace. Lord, your unmerited favor upon us. We love you. We praise you. We ask all this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.